0: Namo tasa bhagavatu arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahato sama Namo tasa bhagavatu arahato sammā sambuddhāsa buddhāṁ saṅgam namāsāṁ Contemplating the teachings of the Buddha, the Blessed One, we reflect on suffering, its cause, its cessation and the path leading to its cessation. And these reflections that we do are to help lead us to distancing ourselves from craving. The object of our search for the truth is we aim for Nibbāna, but in aiming for Nibbāna which is the extinguishing, the removing of the causes and conditions for suffering, we have to distance ourselves from craving. We have to understand why our suffering is due to craving, or how, and how that arises. It's not something esoteric or far from us. It's right here and now easily experienced individually by those who establish mindfulness in front of them. That's the encouragement to establish mindfulness in front of us and then to pay wise attention and when we begin to grasp and grab the experience or the object even the Distancing ourselves from the object is a kind of negative. It's a pushing away. We're still grasping for not having the object. So either way, we're still craving. We're craving its existence or the increase of the experience or we're craving the absence of it. We want it to disappear. And when we meditate, we have the instrument with which to establish mindfulness and to see the results of having mindfulness well-established in the heart. We can't establish mindfulness anywhere else but within the heart. This is an important thing to remember when we're having an argument with someone or a heated discussion And we start getting frustrated and think that they're the cause of our unhappiness. It's you. It's out there. It's them. It's the world. It's not out in the world. But even if we think it's our bodily condition, that's going a little bit too far because the body is not the cause of our suffering. But it's our grasping for a particular condition of the body— a particular experience of the body that is pleasant rather than unpleasant. It doesn't mean that that's wrong to wish for the body to feel pleasant or pain-free, but it simply helps us to understand where our suffering originates. So when we have painful feelings and pleasant feelings, then if we can stay with mindfulness established, well-established, and pay wise attention to the variety of experiences that arise and the phenomena that we witness in consciousness, pleasant sensation, painful sensation, then we can start to get a handle on where the real root of the suffering is. Is it because the experience is pleasant, or is it because the experience is not pleasant? But we see that even if we have pleasant experiences, eventually we suffer because they disappear, they don't last, they're impermanent. So even that which is pleasant makes us restless, unhappy, because it's fading away, and we're grasping for the continuation of it, which is no longer in the present experience, It's already in the future moment, which doesn't exist. And then we're back in that posture of grasping. We never settle enough on the pleasant experience to have any peace with it. Because the mind is constantly caught up in the past and the future. How did I get this? And how can I keep it forever? The actual pleasant experience is so short-lived. It's just a mind moment before we on to the next mind moment wishing that we didn't have to lose this wonderful feeling. Establishing mindfulness helps us to notice this process and not take refuge anymore in pleasant sensations or the absence of painful ones. And when we can see for one mind moment that our ability to know freedom from dependence on pleasant sensation, when we can see that, know that, experience it for one moment, that's a glimpse of Nibbana in the sense that we have removed the fuel for the fire. That's really what Nibbana is. There, there's no fuel left for the fire of craving to burn. We remove the craving, and so we're just noticing the experience itself without wanting it to to be different. And the secret of that is the not wanting, not craving for it to be other than what it is. This is the wise attention. Wise attention allows us to notice the process and not identify with it. So we experience a moment of Nibbāna. And when we can begin to sustain the non-occurrence of dukkha, but of course, uh, this takes a long time because the mind is so quick and it's slippery, difficult to control. And really, it cannot be controlled, but it can be trained. So in our meditation practice, we're training it by enabling it to rest in one place for longer and longer periods of time without moving around, without it wanting to move around or grasping for other experiences, for something other than what is arising in front of us here and now in this moment. So freedom from suffering is not to be found in any other moment. It's timeless. The timelessness of this freedom is based on the only moment, which is right now. So no other time exists but now. Nothing else is real but but this one breath. Even that isn't real because... In its arising, there is already a falling away. No conditioned experience is actually real because it's impermanent, it's full of suffering, it's death-bound, and it's empty of any self. So the only real experience is that which is not death-bound and that which is unconditioned. Another name for Nibbāna is the unconditioned, the unborn, the unmade, the unfabricated. It is the extinguishing of the fire, the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So that suggests that there is a fire. In this simile of the fire, the Buddha speaks to the fire that is burning, because the mind is full of defilements. So it's, it's burning from the, the fuel of craving, which is filling the mind with defilement. But as we purify our minds and train ourselves to be still, to be quiet, to listen to the truth of the way things are here and now in this moment, then the fire is cooled little by little. And in the cooling and stilling of the fire, of wanting, of grasping, of reaching for the unreachable in ways that cannot arrive at that stillness and that state of coolness, by training in that way, we begin to glimpse and experience that which is unconditioned. And that's a moment of, of freedom. It takes a, a lifetime or lifetimes of purifying and training in purification, of removing the defilements, of sharpening our wisdom, of developing this wise attention and this skill developing mindfulness and knowledge, the knowledge which leads to freedom, moment by moment wisdom or wise seeing through. We can't live on retreat. We have to live in everyday life because these special conditions that are created here seclude us enough for the purpose of refining our attention so that we can notice what it is to be mindful and see wisely and what it isn't to be unmindful and not to see with wisdom, to be blinded by the turbulence, the confusion of the world and thereby our minds, because our sense media are continuously impacted by that turbulence. And whatever we have contact with, that will be the condition of the mind. So here we're trying to distance ourselves from contact and then focus through one media, and that's consciousness. Through consciousness, knowing the world, and attending to all the other media, only through the consciousness door, not by giving vent to the sense world, by running after or following sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and pleasant touch sensations. Then we are enlivening the sphere of the mind and the sphere of consciousness as the faculty of that which knows, which can know things as they truly are. And with this heightened awareness, we then go back to ordinary consciousness and see the result of our practice. Can we move with greater skill? Can we move with greater awareness? Can we move with less craving, with less reactivity, with the ability to stay true to our moral and ethical precepts, principles, not to compromise in any way whatsoever. Because any compromise with samsara is a disturbance. It's like feeding the fuel of craving, and it leads us away from the path. So therefore, sila is such an important aspect of this training. And we get tested. When we're in the world, no, it's not as it is here, sitting in the chair and meditating with everyone else being quiet. When we go out into the world, there's so much disturbance. And then we see how we manage with disturbance. We cannot... Control and contain that disturbance outside of ourselves. But how do we carry the balance, the stillness of the mind in the midst of that disturbance? How do we stay centered and focused? Each of you can think of examples from your own daily life. I'll give you an example from mine. Yesterday, I had to call up the government, Service Canada. And of course, any time you call a government department, it's quite a good chance that you have to butt your head against the bureaucracy. I applied for my old age pension three years ago, and it just got approved recently. But apparently I had to reapply for reasons mysterious to me, but nevertheless, I agreed to do this. I handed my application in to a Service Canada office two weeks ago, personally. That no, was three. Anyway, I called the agent, and very nice lady. I described to her my predicament, and she looked on my file and said, we never got it. The new application, which I personally delivered, sealed, and they don't have it. So I noticed my frustration, but I contained it, and I thought, well, surely there must be a note on the file. No, there is no note on the file. Do you remember the date, when you actually handed it in? And I said, you know, I'm I'm not really sure, but it was around the 14th of October. You mean you don't remember the exact date? (laughs) And I, then I began to feel like I couldn't remember and, and I started to feel insecure and like this woman doesn't trust me and she doesn't believe me and I have no proof. I have nothing to show that I actually presented. Didn't you get a ticket from the agent? No. Are you sure you turned it in? She said, it sounds like you're a little bit forgetful. Oh, <laughs> And I thought, wow, that's not a very professional thing to say. And I said, could I speak to a supervisor? And she said, I have all the information you need. I felt bullied, and I thought, this is not a a skillful conversation. But I couldn't say a word, because I'd already asked... Can I please speak to someone else? And she refused. So I thought, well, now how do I navigate with this person that thinks I'm a forgetful old lady and that I don't know what I'm talking about and I probably didn't turn this thing in? And I said, okay, so what do I have to do now? She said, you'll have to submit it again. I actually made out two forms in case something like this happened. Mm -hmm. So I have the signed form that I had written out and I have it all ready, can't I just send in a new copy? And she said, no, your signature is no longer valid. You have to redo the whole form. So then I said, thank you very much. And I ended the conversation. I was very shaken up. I felt um, sweaty and my body was cramped and contracted because I was confronting an aggressive energy and... I wasn't being trusted. I felt all the kind of frustration that you you might feel. But it was stronger than it should have been. And I thought, where's my Dhamma? Where is my my practice here? Why couldn't why couldn't I be more effusive in thanking that woman? I I (laughs) I thanked her in a very kind of cold way. I was reacting. And I reflected on that, and I felt a good test, a good spiritual test. What I want to share with you now is, here's an example of how, how deep our dukkha is, how deep our delusion is. As a young person, my weakest points were easy to bully, unable to deal with confrontation, unable to stand up for myself, unable to speak in situations of conflict. And here it was again. And it was on the telephone. I could have hung up, but I I didn't want to do that because not skillful. But I could not tease out a sense of equilibrium or peace for myself that, you know, well, it doesn't matter, she doesn't understand, I'll call another agent in a few minutes when I finish with her. I grasped the voice of the bully. I grasped it, and I got triggered. Now, these triggers in us are so deep that even if we were to realize the Dhamma at a very deep level, our bodies... Uh, Our cellular memory is so powerful that if we get triggered by life situations, we really need to have purified ourselves completely before these kinds of cellular membranes stop vibrating from all the kalesas that they have been impacted with the level of purification that we need to realize is so profound that those inner vibrations are easily contacted by that which impacted them long ago. And it could be from lifetimes, not just this life. It could be from in the womb, in our mother's arms, as a toddler, sexual abuse. Violence in the family, any kind of violence. Relationship with siblings, violent or abusive. Relationship with colleagues at work, in our 20s, 30s, and so forth. Our collection, the whole container of life's impacts, registered not only in the mind, but in the body. And so when the Buddha gives us four contemplations, forms, feelings, perceptions, and consciousness, he's talking about every nuance of experience that has come to us as human beings in this human journey. And developing our ability to meet the truth of what we hold in the mind and body at such a level that whatever vibration gets triggered at any level we can sit with it make peace with it and come to it in a peaceful, forgiving way that atones by atones I don't mean punishes but I mean brings the tone of it the full tone of it, the gamut of it into the forefront of our consciousness to the extent that we can forgive it and put it down, relinquish, disown, atone, disown it because then we no longer identify with it. We're no longer me-making and I-making as a result of those vibrations we attune ourselves in that atonement. We attune ourselves to a higher frequency, and that frequency is one of unconditional love and compassion. So in that moment of seeing a collapse in my body, but my mind was not collapsed, but my body was still in that vibration, that frequency of being bullied, being aggressed, and I cried, tears coming down, and I felt so much compassion for myself and for the woman, because I could not tell her, you are acting aggressively towards me. I couldn't communicate the truth that I was discovering, that I was realizing in myself. I couldn't share it with her. And that had been, for me, as a child, also a frustration. When I was experiencing violence, I couldn't share what I knew with the person bringing that violence to me. I remember a friend of mine's 10-year-old son once told her she had been going through a terrible divorce, and he was pining for his dad and she didn't want to have anything to do with the dad one day in a moment of frustration with her son she grabbed him and he said to her mom you shouldn't touch anyone when you're angry this is a truth for everyone we should never touch anyone when we're angry and we should never touch ourselves when we're angry We should never comment on ourselves with anger. Never evaluate ourselves with an angry mind. Never move from the fear and the turbulence of vibrations implanted in us during our most vulnerable moments of life, speared, gunned down by words of anger, by Assaults of aggression through violent speech or conduct, through rape in speech, not just in conduct, or attack, or insult, or injury of any volume. So, in that moment, I could turn the volume down in my body. And I picked up the phone, called the next agent, a really sweet lady. And she said, no problem. She said, you know, it takes time for these applications to get filed on the computer. It might be another couple of weeks. Why don't you call us in a week or two? What was all that about? Well, it's like an intentional spiritual test, like a karmic unfolding to help me get a little closer to Nibbāna, to give up the grasping, not to grab even the negative impact, which creates the sense of self, the identification with that pain that is locked in the body or the mind, deeply locked. We want to unlock it, unfurl it, free it. Finally, at last, It's quite a painful process. It's a relinquishment of comfort, this process of liberation. We have to be willing to sit with and sit through some very sticky moments. Mm -hmm. But at the end of them, we can feel the sweetness of a victory that is indescribable. So this morning when I woke up and I felt the sadness of the fear that there is in us. How much work there is still in me to do. And I thought, yes, I had a moment of weakness and there will be more. But out of that weakness, because we practice we can pull a strength that is precious. And we mustn't let our fear disrupt us from the potential to keep pulling ourselves out of weakness because we are stronger than we realize we are more powerful than we know and we can see the truth and in seeing the truth in the moment we can undo all the untruth of the past and the future because we're alive in this moment. And by being fully alive in this moment, we have enough freedom from falseness, from delusion, to be alive for another moment and another moment. And remove the fuel from the fire of delusion so that we can be cooled and freed and touch the unconditioned within our own hearts. That's how we bless ourselves. With unconditional love, with unconditional compassion, with unconditional fearlessness, which is joyful, unvanquished, unshakable. And then we have that unconditional equanimity. Even if it's a moment of being able to be centered, conscious, awake, knowing I can do this I can be courageous I can be kind I cannot cure and free another person from their dukkha but I can free myself from my own dukkha from long ago held in the body, held in the heart and freed for a moment it bears trying again and again and again. Never give up.